Good evening, everyone. It is my great pleasure to be announcing and introducing Chuck Polinick, Monica Drake, and Chelsea Kane tonight. We've got condoms, we've got balls, we've got glow sticks. It's a pretty typical night at the library, actually, for us. So thank you very much for coming out. Uh, my name is Jacob Hodes. I'm chair of the Pratt Contemporaries and I'm a board member at the Pratt Library. I wanted to just tell you a little bit about the library itself and kind of talk to you a little bit about the authors too. Um, it's a very special night, obviously. Tonight we have uh, a number of people. Raise your hand if you've, or hold your balls in the air, balls out if you've never been to the library before. That's pretty fucking amazing, actually. How about balls up if you've, uh, if you've read Doomed or Damned or seen Fight Club? All right. Well, despite the weather, it's awesome that you all came out tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, this is a very special edition, again, of our Writers Live series. Uh, we don't have too many events like this. This is Chuck's only stop on his East Coast tour. So we're really... We're totally honored that he chose Baltimore, the great city of Baltimore, charmed city for his stop. Um, but that said, we've got people from all over the country here. We've got people from California, from Vermont, from North Carolina, New York. We won't hold it against the New Yorkers here. Got some weird, some weird places, but uh, we're, we're, we're happy that you came here. One of the great things about the library is that a place that everyone can come together. The Enoch Pratt Library is one of the oldest library systems in the United States. Libraries are one of the few places in cities today that anyone can come. doesn't matter rich or poor, color of your skin, religion, race. So thank you all for coming out tonight. It really embraces the spirit of the library. That's why we're all here tonight. And if you're from Baltimore or wherever you're from, please go home and support your libraries, not just tonight, but all the time. Events like this are put on by generous donations. Uh, we really count on your support however you can. doesn't need to be a donation. can be checking out a book. can be just coming, visiting events. There's great events at libraries just like this all around the country. really means a lot to us that you're out here tonight. So thank you very much. Uh, um, so the uh, last thing I'll say is I guess I thought, um, I thought Monica was passing out extra balloons. So I don't know if anyone else blew up their, uh, their business card. But... Um, but please have fun tonight. It's, again, it's a very special night. Um, one housekeeping item, if you're interested in any of Chuck's books, Monica's books, or Chelsea's books, they're all back at the counter over there. Um, you know, please feel free. If you, have, if you don't have them yet, stop by and get them. Uh, enough bullshit for me. We're going to get started tonight. Um, again, please welcome Chuck and his adult bedtime stories. Thank you very much. Back at the Pratt, here we are again. The last time I was here, someone crocheted me a human skull. <laughs> Is she here? Oh. 
So fickle. <laughs> what I'd like to do is I wanted to just read a kind of a golden oldie story just to get the room settled because we still have people coming in just to make sure that everybody has found a place and that everybody's comfortable and everybody can hear and the microphone works. So the, the extra story tonight, the kind of appetizer story is a golden oldie. Guts. Which made four people very unhappy in New Orleans last night. Guts. Inhale. Inhale. Take in as much air as you possibly can. This story should last just about as long as you can hold your breath, and then just a little bit longer. So listen as fast as you can. A friend of mine, when he was 13 years old, he heard all about pegging. Pegging is when a guy gets banged up the butt with a dildo. Stimulate the prostate gland hard enough and the rumor is that you can have explosive, hands-free orgasms. At that age, at 13, my friend's a little sex maniac. The poor signing guy. At that age, at 13, my friend's a little sex maniac. He's always jonesing for a better way to get his rocks off. So he goes out to buy a carrot and some petroleum jelly to conduct a little private research. Then he pictures how it's going to look at the supermarket check stand, that lonely carrot <laughs> and the petroleum jelly rolling down the conveyor belt toward the grocery store cashier, all the shoppers waiting in line watching, everyone seeing the big evening he has planned. <laughs> so my friend, he buys milk and eggs and sugar and a carrot, all the ingredients for a carrot cake and Vaseline, like he's going to go home and cram a carrot cake up his butt. <laughs> at home. At home, he whittles the carrot into a blunt little tool. He slathers it with the grease, and he grinds his ass down on it. Then nothing, no orgasm. Nothing happens except it hurts. Then, this kid, his mom yells, Supper time! She says to come downstairs right now. So he works the carrot out, and he stashes the slippery, filthy thing in the dirty clothes under his bed. After dinner, he goes to find the carrot, and it's gone. All of his dirty clothes, 
While he was eating dinner, his mother grabbed them to do the laundry. No way could she not find this carrot, carefully shaped with a paring knife from her kitchen, still shiny with lube and stinky. This friend of mine, he waits months under a black cloud waiting for his folks to confront him, and they never do. Even now, even now that he has grown up, this invisible carrot hangs over every Christmas dinner, <laughs> every birthday party, every Easter egg hunt with his kids, now his parents' grandkids. That ghost carrot is hovering over all of them. That's something too awful to name. People in France, they have a phrase, spirit of the stairway. In French, they say, esprit d'escarrier. It means that moment when you find the answer, but it's just too late. Say you're at a party and somebody insults you. You have to say something. So under pressure, with everybody watching, you say something lame. But the moment you leave the party, as you start down the stairwell, then magic. You come up with the perfect thing you should have said, that perfect crippling put-down. That is spirit of the stairway. The trouble is that even the French don't have a phrase for the stupid things you actually do say under pressure, those stupid, desperate things you actually think or do. Some deeds are too low to even get a name, too low to ever get talked about. Looking back, kid psych experts, school counselors, now say that the last, most of the last peak in teen suicide was just kids trying to choke while they beat off. Their folks would find them, a towel twisted around the kid's neck, the towel tied to the rod in their bedroom closet, their kid dead, dead sperm everywhere. Of course their folks cleaned up. They put some pants on their kid. They made it look better, intentional at least, just the regular sad kind of teen suicide. Another friend of mine, a kid from school, his older brother in the Navy said how guys in the Middle East, they jack off different than we do over here. This brother was stationed in some, in some camel country where the public market sells what could be fancy letter openers. Each fancy tool is just a thin rod of polished brass or silver, maybe as long as your hand, but with a big tip at one end either a big metal ball or the kind of fancy carved handle that you would see on a sword. This Navy brother says how Arab guys, they get their dick hard, and then they insert this metal rod inside the whole length of their boner. They jack off with the rod inside, and it makes getting off so much better, more intense. It is this big brother who travels around the world sending back French phrases, Russian phrases, helpful jack-off tips. After this, after this, the little brother, one day he doesn't show up at school. 
That night he calls to ask if I will pick up his homework for the next couple weeks because he's in the hospital. He's got to share a room with old people getting their guts worked on. He says how they all have to share the same television, except all he's got for privacy is a curtain. His folks don't come to visit. On the phone, he says how right now his folks could just kill his big brother in the Navy. On the phone, the kid says how the day before he was just he was just a little bit stoned. At home in his bedroom, he was flopped on the bed. He was lighting a candle and flipping through some old porno magazines, getting ready to beat off. This is after he's heard from his Navy brother that helpful hint about how Arabs beat off. The kid looks around for something that might do the job. A ballpoint pen is too big. A pencil is too big and too rough. But dripped down one side of the candle, there is a thin, smooth ridge of wax that just might work. With just the tip of one finger, this kid snaps the long ridge of wax off the candle. He rolls it smooth between the palms of his hands, long and smooth and thin, stoned and horny. He slips it down inside, deeper and deeper into the piss slit of his boner. With a good hank of the wax still poking out the top, he gets to work. Even now, even now, he says those Arab guys are pretty damn smart. They have totally reinvented jacking off. Flat on his back in bed, things are getting so good that this kid can't keep track of the wax. He is one good squeeze away from shooting his wad when, 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 when the wax isn't sticking out anymore. The thin wax rod, it slipped inside, all the way inside, so deep inside that he can't even feel the lump of it inside of his piss tube. From downstairs, his mom shouts, It's supper time! <laughs> she says to come downstairs right now. This wax kid and the carrot kid, they are different people, but we all live pretty much the same life. It's after dinner. It's after dinner when the kid's guts start to hurt. It's wax. So he figured that it would just melt inside of him and he could just piss it out. But now his back hurts, his kidneys. He can't stand straight. This kid talking on the phone from his hospital bed, in the background you can hear bells ding, people screaming, game shows. The x-ray showed the truth. Something long and thin bent double inside of his bladder. This long, thin V inside of him, it's collecting all the minerals in his piss. 
It is getting bigger and more rough, coated with crystals of calcium. It is bumping around, ripping up the soft lining of his bladder, blocking his piss from getting out. His kidneys are backed up. What little that does leak out of his dick is red with blood. This kid, this kid and his folks, his whole family, them looking at the black x-ray, with the doctors and the nurses standing there, the big V of the wax glowing bright white for everybody to see. He has to tell the truth. The way Arabs get off. <laughs> what his big brother wrote him from the Navy. On the telephone, on the telephone right now, he starts to cry. They paid for the bladder operation with his college fund. One stupid mistake, and now he will never be a lawyer. Sticking stuff inside yourself, sticking yourself inside of stuff. A candle in your dick or your head and a noose. We all knew that this was going to be big trouble. What got me in trouble... What got me in trouble, I called it pearl diving. This meant whacking off underwater, sitting on the bottom at the deep end of my parents' swimming pool. With one deep breath, I would kick my way to the bottom and slip off my swim trunks. I would sit down there for two, three, four minutes. Just from jacking off, I had huge lung capacity. If I had the house to myself, I could do this all afternoon. After I'd finally pump out my stuff, my sperm, it would hang there in big, fat, milky gobs. After that was more diving, to catch it all, to collect each greasy handful and to wipe it into a towel. That's why it was called pearl diving. Even with chlorine, there was my sister to worry about. <laughs> or Christ Almighty, my mom. That used to be my worst fear in the world. My teenage virgin sister thinking she's just getting fat and then giving birth to a two-headed retard baby. <laughs> Both the heads looking just like me. Me, the father, and the uncle. <laughs> still, still, in the end, it is never what you worry about that actually gets you. The best part of pearl diving was the inlet port for the swimming pool filter in the circulation pump. The best part was getting naked and sitting on it. As the French would say, who doesn't like getting their butt sucked? <laughs> still, still one minute you're just a kid getting off and the next minute you'll never be a lawyer. <laughs> one minute I am settling on the pool bottom and the sky is wavy light blue through eight feet of water above my head. The world is silent except for the heartbeat in my ears. 
My yellow striped swim trunks are looped around my neck for safekeeping just in case a friend, a neighbor, anybody shows up to ask why I skipped football practice. The steady suck of the pool inlet hole is lapping at me, and I am grinding my skinny white ass around on that feeling. One minute, I've got enough air and my dick's in my hand. My folks are gone at their work and my sister's got ballet. And nobody's supposed to be home for hours. My hand brings me right to getting off. And I stop. I swim up to catch another big breath. I dive down and settle on the bottom. I do this again and again. This must be why girls want to sit on your face. (laughs) The suction is like taking a dump that never ends. (laughs) My dick hard and getting my butt eaten out. I do not need air. (laughs) My heartbeat in my ears, I stay under until bright stars of light start worming around in my eyes, my legs straight out, the back of each knee rubbed raw against the concrete bottom. My toes are turning blue, my toes and fingers wrinkled from being so long in the water. And then I let it happen. The big white gobs start spouting, the pearls... It's then I need some air. But when I go to kick off against the bottom, I can't. I can't get my feet underneath me. My ass is stuck. Emergency paramedics will tell you (laughs) that every year about 150 people get stuck this way, sucked by a circulation pump. You get your long hair caught or your ass and you are going to drown. Every year, tons of people do. Most of them in Maryland. (laughs) People just don't talk about it. Not even French people talk about everything. Getting one knee up, getting one foot tucked underneath me, I get to half standing when I feel the tug against my butt. Getting my other foot underneath me, I kick off against the bottom. I'm kicking free, not touching the concrete, but, but not getting to the air either. Still kicking water, thrashing with both arms, I may be halfway to the surface but not getting any higher. The heartbeat inside of my head is getting loud and fast. The bright sparks of light are crossing and crisscrossing my eyes. I turn and look back. I turn and look back. I turn and look back, but it doesn't make any kind of sense. This thick rope, some kind of snake, blue-white and braided with veins. It's come up out of the pool drain, and it's holding tight onto my butthole. Some of the veins are leaking blood, red blood that looks black underwater and drifts away from little rips in the pale skin of the snake. The blood trails away, disappearing in the water, and inside the snake's thin, blue-white skin 
You can see lumps of some half-digested meal. That's the only way this makes sense. Some horrible sea monster, a sea serpent, something that's never seen the light of day. It's been hiding in the dark bottom of our swimming pool drain, just waiting to eat me. So? So I kick at it. I kick at the slippery, rubbery, knotted skin and veins of it, and more of it seems to pull up out of the pool drain. It's maybe as long as my leg now, but still holding tight around my butthole. With another kick, I'm an inch closer to getting another breath, still feeling the snake tug at my ass. I'm an inch closer to my escape. Knotted, knotted deep inside the snake, you can see corn and peanuts. You can see a long, bright orange ball. It's the kind of horse pill vitamin that my dad makes me take to help me put on weight to get a football scholarship with extra iron and omega-3 fatty acids. It's seeing that vitamin pill that saves my life. It's not a snake. It's my large intestine, my colon pulled out of me, what doctors call prolapsed. It's my gut sucked into the drain. Paramedics will tell you (laughs) that a swimming pool pump pulls 80 gallons of water every minute. That's 400 pounds of pressure. The big problem is that we are all connected together inside. Your ass is just the far end of your mouth. If I let go, the pump keeps working. It keeps unraveling my insides until it's got my tongue. Imagine taking a 400-pound shit, and you can see how this might turn you inside out. What I can tell you, what I can tell you is that your guts don't feel much pain not the way your skin feels pain, the stuff that you're digesting. Doctors call it fecal matter. Higher up is chyme, pockets of thin, runny mess studded with corn and peanuts and round green peas. That, that is all of this soup of blood and corn and shit and sperm and peanuts floating all around me. Even with my guts unraveling out of my ass, me holding on to what's left, even then my first want is to somehow get my swimsuit back on. God forbid my folks see my dick. (laughs) My one hand holding a fist around my ass, my other hand snags my yellow striped swim trunks and pulls them from around my neck. Still... Getting back into them is impossible. You want to feel your intestines? Go buy a pack of those lambskin condoms. Take one out and unroll it. Pack it with peanut butter. 
smear it with petroleum jelly and hold it under water, and then try to tear it, try to pull it in half. It is just too tough and rubbery. It is so slimy you cannot hold on. A lambskin condom that's just plain old, in, plain old intestine. Now, now you can see what I'm up against. You let go for a second and you're gutted. You swim for the surface for a breath and you're gutted. You don't swim and you drown. This, this right now, is a choice between being dead right now or a minute from right now. What my folks will find after work is a big naked fetus curled in on itself, floating in the cloudy water of their backyard swimming pool, tethered to the bottom by a thick rope of veins and twisted guts, the opposite of a kid hanging himself to death while he jacks off. (laughs) This is the baby they brought home from the hospital 13 years ago. Here is the kid that they hoped would snag a football scholarship and get an MBA who would care for them in their old age. Here are all of their hopes and dreams floating here naked and dead, all around him big milky pearls of wasted sperm. It's either that or my folks will find me wrapped in a bloody towel collapsed halfway between the pool and the kitchen telephone, the ragged, torn scrap of my gut still hanging out one leg of my yellow-striped swim trunks. What even the French won't talk about. That big brother in the Navy, he taught us one other really good phrase, a Russian phrase, the way that we say, I need that like I need a hole in my head. Russian people say, I need that like I need teeth in my asshole. Nie, eto nadochach zubiva zjednetsya. Good luck with that one. Those stories that you hear, about how animals caught in a trap will chew off their leg? Well, any coyote will tell you that a couple bites beats the hell out of being dead. Even if you're Russian, someday you just might want to have those teeth. (laughs) Otherwise, otherwise what you got to do is you got to twist around. You hook one elbow behind your knee and you pull that leg up to your face. You bite and snap at your own ass. You run out of air, and you will chew through anything to get that next breath. This is not something you want to tell a girl on the first date. (laughs) Not if you expect a kiss goodnight. (laughs) If I told you how it tasted, you would never, ever again eat calamari. It is really hard to say what my parents were more disgusted by, how I got myself into trouble or how I saved myself. After the hospital, 
My mom said, you didn't know what you were doing, honey. You were in shock. And she learned how to cook poached eggs. All you people grossed out were just feeling sorry for me. I need that like I need teeth in my asshole. Nowadays, people always tell me I look too skinny. People at dinner parties, they get all quiet and pissed off when I don't eat the pot roast they cooked. Pot roast kills me, baked ham, anything that hangs around inside of my guts for longer than a couple hours, it comes out still food. Home-cooked lima beans or chunk-light tuna fish, I'll stand up and find it still sitting there in the toilet. After you've had a radical bowel resectioning, you don't digest meat so great. Most people, most people, you have five feet of large intestine. I am lucky to have my six inches. So I I never got that football scholarship. I never got that MBA. Both of my friends, the wax kid, the wax kid and the carrot kid, they both grew up and they both got big. But I have never weighed a pound more than I did that day when I was 13. Another big problem was my folks, they paid a lot of good money for that swimming pool. In the end, my dad just told the pool guy it was a dog. The family dog fell in and drowned. The dead body got pulled into the pump. Even when the pool guy cracked open the filter casing and fished out a a rubbery tube, a watery hank of intestine with a big orange vitamin pill still inside, even then, my old man said, That dog was fucking nuts. (laughs) Even from my upstairs bedroom window, you could hear my old man say, we couldn't trust that dog alone for a second. Then my sister missed her period. Even after they finally changed the pool water, after they sold the house, and we moved to another state, after my sister's abortion, even then my folks never, ever, ever, ever mentioned this again. Ever. That is our family's invisible carrot. You. Now you can take a good deep breath because I still have not. That's guts. Thank you for joining me in the lovely Pratt Library. Tonight, tonight you have a triple honor because you will also be meeting Chelsea Kane and Monica Drake, 
two writers who would not be here if I did not completely admire them and completely steal from them every time I read their work. <laughs> Chelsea is the writer of the best-selling Heartsick thriller series. She's about to launch another series, and she has created Gretchen Lowell, who is well on the way to being as immortal as Tyler Durden. That is Chelsea Kane. Monica Drake is the author first of Clown Girl, which is, if you are in any way plugged in and hip and young, is a book on your shelves, Clown Girl. It's a modern classic. And more recently, she is the author of The Stud Book, which is out right now in hardcover. Chelsea Kane makes the coolest, funniest, hippest people laugh. And uh, I just wish more people knew, Chelsea, uh, knew Monica Drake. So, how many people tonight have never been to a book event? Raise your hands. That's good. That's really good. How it's going to go is we're going to play some games, we're going to have some readings, we're going to answer some questions, and, uh, and that's about it. Part of the games, let me introduce Chelsea and Monica first just to get them up there. Please, Chelsea and Monica, can you join me? Part of the games involve the beach balls that you have been so kind to inflate. You have literally breathed life into this literary event. And there is a big use for them at the end. But occasionally throughout the evening, we'll, we will need to mix them up. And for right now, I would like to kill the lights and mix up the beach balls. So, if we could first kill the lights, and on the count of three, throw them toward the center of the room, as high and toward the center of the room as you possibly can. One, two, three. Ah! Oh. Okay, get your balls under control. <laughs> Curb your balls. And now, gradually dissipate the balls back out throughout the room so that we're more or less evenly distributed. Balls to the back, balls to the sides. Hi. 
Hi. Hi. There it is. That's what I was looking for. I'm so proud of you guys. You made me look good in front of Chuck because I taught them that, how to handle your balls. It was really, really good. Um, I wanted to add one little thing, and that is take pictures because they're fucking amazing and we don't care if you have your camera out. So that's fine. They're really cool when the balls go in the air. And if you want to hashtag them doomed, then you can find each other's pictures. Okay? Good night. So, I will read later, I will read at the very end of the program something brand new. And there is a reason why I try to put as much room between Monica's reading and my reading. It's because 80% of my style is stolen directly from Monica. Monica Drake unknowingly taught me how to write. If you're going to be funny, don't be intentionally funny. If you're going to be smart, don't be intentionally smart or profound or clever. And Monica's writing is always somehow all of those things. Funny, insightful, profound, heartbreaking. But you never get a sense that she's really trying to do that, that she's manipulating you. So, so you're setting it up too much. It's fine. That way they'll be surprised. Monica Drake. You know, I, I always learn from listening to Chuck's work, too. And if you guys listen close, you will learn. You will learn. Yeah, listen to what he's doing. Um, this is kind of an amazing place for this event. It's crazy. It's so beautiful. And uh, you guys know that Guts, that story Guts is just like mythic. I mean, people have mythologized that story. It's crazy. And he just um, read that to you. That's like a huge gift. And now... And now I get to be here, and I feel so totally honored. So thank you so much. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a fiction writer. I'm not a memoirist. I'm not a, a big um, con- confessional person. But I'm coming here to Baltimore in the spirit of uh, the Catholicism of my name, Monica, Saint Monica and her son Augustine, the confessions. Now I'm lecturing. But here's my confession. I'm coming with a confession to Baltimore. And it's, um, it's a confession to one person who might be here about something that happened up in Portland, Oregon, where I, where I live. And I'm sending it out to you guys. So anyway, here it is. You, lamb chop, my sweet, my dearest dear, I'm sorry I put your good shirt in somebody else's cardboard box marked free on the street. The box was on the corner of Northeast 13th and Prescott, if that helps anything. And yes, I tried to throw your shoes over the wire in the middle of the night, and they landed in the street, there was a car coming, and I took off. But here's the thing, I'd hauled our bottles and cans back to the recycling center, and the smell of that recycling center, it has an effect. It's all rancid beer, mold, and soggy cigarettes. And you know how I am. I'm sentimental. That smell reminds me of the day after a good bender, and good friends, house parties, and it makes me want to gag. But I want to crack a new beer, too. Out of sentiment. 
It's the way a dumpster on a hot day smells like that vacation we took to Acapulco. Remember that? I love that smell because of us, because of you, really. So I was taking cans back, and this woman comes up with a shopping cart full of bottles, and we were moving in unison with our hands feeding the machines, and I was all Diet Coke, Diet Coke, Diet Coke, 7-Up, and she was all beer, 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 and we had the sun on our backs, and she had these dyed red, dyed, I'm sorry, dyed blue chunks in her pale hair, and she was wearing these baggy overall cutoffs, and maybe I was staring, but you know me, I'm a people person. So she looks, and randomly she says, Hey, honey, you want some extra pots and pans? I'm moving. It's good stuff I'm trying to get rid of. And I say, free? We know what moving is like, right? So she wants to give things away instead of packing. I understand that, and I'm here to help. She says, It's pretty close by. Just walk with me, and I'll hand you this whole set of Revere wear. There's a tortilla maker, too. So we're still feeding the machines and talking over that clank and rattle, that rancid beer party air. And I say, sure, because I'm thinking of you and how much you like homemade tortillas. And then her phone rings, and she takes the call, and she says, dude, check, five minutes. She tells me, I've got to get back and fix this tattoo. And I say, you're a tattoo artist? Her arms are laced in funky drawings of field grass and briars. She says, not really, just ink, stick, and poke. I'm crazy about the sound of those words. Why do I like words? I do. And her eyes are pale and kind of nutty, and she's pretty, but not perfect. She's like a chip doll in the wrong clothes, but she's giving off pheromones or something, I think. It makes me dizzy, and right away, I just like her a lot. So we turn in our receipts and change all those bottles into a few bucks, and I follow her down the street, and we stop at this apartment, and the door's open. There's a guy holding his arm like it's in a sling, except it's not, and that arm is patched with dried blood. So she straightens his arm out and holds it. His skin is caramel, and he's strong, sinewy, and a mess where he's tried to write something on his body. Heathens, heathers, I can't exactly read it. And then she smacks his arm and he pulls it back and she says, there's nothing I can do with that till the swelling goes down. And he says, who's this? Meaning me. And she says, I'm giving her the pots and pans, right? Like it's some conversation they've already had. And I want to remind her about the tortilla maker. (laughs) Because I am thinking of you, my bonbon. My little highball, my Manhattan, my pumpernickel, my pet. I am thinking of you when I step into their dark, cool cave. And the guy presses his bloody arm against the wall. He's got long, shagged-out hair and a narrow nose and a thin smile, and maybe he's a little high. I could see him as a drummer behind a drum kit. Maybe he sees himself like that, too. He says, can I do you? And he's got a sewing needle in his hand with ink-covered thread wrapped around it. And when he takes his arm away, there's this ghost of the word he'd tried to write left in dots on the white paint of the wall. Heathens, I'm pretty sure now. Definitely heathens. He says, I'm good, I just can't do myself. But what I see in him is a man willing to live with his mistakes. 
And the woman lifts her patchy blue hair, raises her head to flash this blood-flecked thorns of a rose on the side of her neck, just dangerously over those arteries, and I say, you know, I'm okay. But the guy must be giving off pheromones too, because I start to like him right away. I just like him so much. I kind of want to chew on his split ends. I want to clutch his red, bloody arm. He says it starts with an Oxycontin. And I know he's plying me, but on their cluttered coffee table, there's this whole mess of pills. And the woman picks one pill up, and she says, those are oxycodone. So maybe I give this come-hither glance at the meds. I don't know, but the guy's inspired enough to say, I've got Xanax. And a blue pill pulled from his linty pocket says Xanax in all caps right on it. So I think I'm being careful by reading it first, right? Maybe this is where I went wrong. I don't know. But I look for a glass of water. He's got a motorcycle, an old BSA, taken apart on newspaper in his kitchen. And I say, nice. And he shrugs, and he says, 250 cc's, old school. While that Xanax creeps into my blood, we get into this motorcycle thing. He says, you look more like you'd handle a 350, maybe 550. And he passes me an open bottle of Maker's Mark, and that's an even better party than that rancid beer smell. And I have this surge through my veins, and the woman crowds me, sort of both of us against the fridge, our thighs side by side, and I'm a little taller than she is. And I melt into this crazy, shy riot of need. So to cover what feels like blushing, I say... Like a fine wine, I'm made to be drunk, and I take a big swig, and she drinks too. And it turns out the guy has this other bike in back, a 350, and he offers to let me ride it. And I say, you know, I don't ride a bike like that, only a dirt bike, really. And he says, it's the same basic deal. His words come out soft and sleepy. And he's older than he looked at first. I think they both are. And the burn of whiskey always makes me so happy. And I know I said I'd be home, but things like this come up, right, darling? So what I feel in the kitchen is the way that humans are so flawed and so perfect. And I just want to share bodies. You know your old dog? That's how I feel. I want to climb on people and breathe their breath. I want to lick the inside of strangers' mouths. I don't know these two. But who do we ever know, really, past the skin? And just tell me, you know, how do, how do we get there? So by the time I take the bike outside, we've been in the apartment so long, I totally forgot the sun would still be shining. But there it is, lo and behold, setting sun in my eyes. And I think even the motorcycle is giving off pheromones. I like it so much right away. My head is thick, and my hopes are up, and I put my legs around the bike, and the engine gives off this heat, and it moves fast enough to make decisions for me, so when I try to brake, it makes the wrong decision. I twist my wrist back and notch up the throttle, hit a cement parking strip, then go over a walkway into the backside of a laundromat, and I fall, slow motion, all of it. So when I saw you, and you asked where I'd been those days, and I said, out... What I meant was, out cold. (laughs) I wasn't trying to be uncommunicative, my sweet thing. Sometimes our greatest strength is our greatest weakness, right? I couldn't leave once I came around. They made sure I stayed up all night. 
They took care of me. We kept each other up. We took care of bodies. So I'm home now, and you didn't need to leave. I hate it when you storm out. That's why the shirt thing? Yes. Your shirt was dreamy. Maybe it's still out there. Nobody would notice what a good shirt it is and how it smells so rich with that human scent of you. Your shoes? I'm not so sure about. But I'm here, and I have stolen pills for you in my pocket. I'm ready to make you homemade tortillas. This is love. This is how love works. Just call me. Thank you. Okay, I just conferred with Chelsea. I said, do we give them questions? Do we give them another reading? Or do we give them pussy? And Chelsea said, let's give them pussy. Yeah, because we're friends, right? We had a thing earlier. They're so nervous. These are 150 stuffed kittens. And if you read Doomed, then you'll know the reference. So, kittens. Baltimore is so state in other cities people were killing each other for these little kittens. I feel like it's quiet, so we're gonna we're gonna take this is this is Todd, everybody. Hi, Todd. And he he has a an eye eye touch, and we're gonna see what kind of music he has and play it through the microphone. And if it's not cool enough, we'll use somebody else's. So think about your playlist. Accordion? Did I just see a song called Accordion?
That is it. Oh. If it's any consolation, please know that there are human beings chained to machines and factories in China, <laughs> making more of those kittens. So, on that note, I'd like to introduce Chelsea Kane. One second. Hi. I'm going to try moving this. I don't know about the horror movie lighting. Is that bad under the chin? And move that. That's bad. No, it's bad, Todd. I just move it over because it lights me underneath, and that's not. Yeah. I'm just going to need ten minutes to get the lighting right. That's good, right? Okay. I want to、um, apologize to the deaf translator. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Um, this is my baby, so I need you guys to be really quiet and not wake her. Shh. Tried to recover that, making it seem like a trick, but we're fine. They're so quiet. That's good. This is a, a based on a, it's sort of a literary reference. Just so stories. This, oh my best beloved, is a story, a new story, a terrible, terrible story, of a mother's love for her baby. This baby was cruel. Oh, my best beloved, always hungry, always crying. Back when the world was wild in 2001, in a house in Spokane, Washington, the mother, kind, tired mother, wanted some peace and quiet. Please go to sleep, baby. The mother said, "I will not!" shouted the baby, always hungry, always pooping. And the baby began to scream. <coughs> the scream was so loud that it frightened the salmon, who all swam back to the ocean, and startled the eagles, who fell from the sky. <coughs> so the mother, always giving, always changing diapers. Shook the baby. She shook and shook her until the baby's head was loose. Her bad baby, always hungry, always yelling. And after ever so many shakes, the baby was dead. 
Off ran mother, kind, frantic mother, always giving, always making dinner. She buried the baby in the backyard under the apple tree. She had to. Then the mother slept. She was so tired, she slept for three days and three nights, and the salmon returned, and the eagles flew in the sky. But after three days and nights, that baby, that bad baby, always hungry, always spitting up, was hungrier still. <laughs> up jumped baby from her shallow grave, her skin pearly and bruised, sloughing off, revealing rotting muscle meat underneath, maggots and beetles in her eyes. Fast ran baby, still hungry, still crying, into the house, flies following her. She ran to her mother's room. <coughs> Feed me, the baby cried. The baby was already gnawing at the cat, holding it by the neck, its throat torn open blood and cat hair around the baby's mouth. Oh, my best beloved, imagine the mother's surprise. Up jumped mother, always anxious, always vacuuming from the bed. She caught the baby and wrapped her in a garbage bag and tied the garbage bag with rope. And then she drove down the cul-de-sac, down the highway, past the big box stores to the bridge and she tossed that bad baby overboard into the river. She had to. Off drove mother, kind, loving mother, over the bridge, past the big box store, down the highway, up the cul-de-sac, all the way home, where she took a Valium and turned on daytime television until her head stopped pounding. Then she rested. Law and order was on. She watched ever so many episodes. Night came. Up jumped baby, hungrier still, always with a diaper rash, never satisfied. From her watery grave, her flesh half-eaten by fish, eels in her eyes, she ran up the riverbank over the bridge, past the big box stores, down the highway, up the cul-de-sac, flies following her. Feed me, she yelled. She had no manners then, and she has no manners now, and she never will have any manners. Up jumped mother, halfway to the kitchen, halfway to her butcher knife. But then she paused. Something was different. Baby was quiet. Baby, hungry baby, always kicking, always clawing, was still. Baby was watching the TV set. Baby was good. Mother, 
always singing, always reading Goodnight Moon, never complaining, padded, baby slimy fontanelle. And that, my best beloved, is why mothers let their children watch television to this day. All right, we do, we need to do one quick more mix of the balls. So if we could first have the lights shut off, then the asinine music, and balls in the air. You people in the middle, you need to be getting those balls up in the air. You need to be working. People in the middle, don't just get buried. Do your jobs. These, these balls are cancerous. They will off-gas. So you'll probably want to, you want to toss them up in the air. Get them away <laughs> from your orifices. Look at the ceiling, you guys. All right. Restrain your balls. Let them settle. Thank you. And again, gradually disperse. That's not gradual. The magic balls to the edges of the room. Clear out the central aisle, make sure they're all picked up and shipped off. By now, you've lost all attachment to your ball. Wait until we do the nail tossing later. Okay. Okay, I still see balls on the floor. They need to be distributed. Remember, you. you guys, this rave is taking place in a library, so you want to behave. It's a library rave. <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll get the librarians up here if we have to. They're here. 
This next part. This next part is like sex. Your job is to be there and to be quiet <laughs> until I am done. But actually, before that, this next part is like foreplay. One of our favorite books in the last couple years is a novel called Dora, written by a writer named Lydia Yuknovich, the only other American writer with a harder to spell name than my own. I'm going to take a picture of you with that and send it to Lydia right now, because that's the age we live in. It's going to take me a minute to open the picture. It's just seven steps. I'm sorry to break the mood. I shouldn't have said anything. There, got it. Thanks. Lydia Yuknovich. The novel is called Dora, and it's a comic retelling of Sigmund Freud's analysis of Dora. So if you've got a question, we're going to go through three questions. You get a copy of Dora by Lydia Yuknovich. Don't make it a lame question. Don't ask what you think of the Fight Club movie. Don't ask, what music do you listen to? Don't ask, where do you get your ideas? Ask a good question. No pressure. So, for a copy of Dora, what's your question? What drugs was he on when he wrote the book? about the plastic surgery and Invisible Monsters and the retelling of Invisible Monsters. What drugs was Chuck on? That was, that's so meta, what's going on right here? I was on a drug that was known at the time as MTV. It was the golden age of MTV, when you could turn it on and it was just videos. I love that that's now like analog. And I had skin that was as tight as a snake's. That's what you really miss. <laughs> now it was, I wrote Invisible Monsters kind of in the late 80s, early 90s when I had this enormous circle of friends who had nothing to do but watch MTV. And we would just sit around and watch MTV. And I had the attention span of a Billy Idol music video. And so that's why the book is so choppy. That's why the book jumps around. Did you and write during commercial breaks? I wrote all the time, but we were also, it was a phase of our lives when we took road trips constantly. And uh, one of my friends had a, a wealthy relative that was coming into Portland to buy property, and we agreed to squire this guy around. And I still remember going into the first West Hills mansion, and as the wealthy relative takes the realtor, my friend Jeff, who is kind of Tyler Durden, grabbed him by the arm and, and dragged me upstairs and said, we've got to find the master bedroom really fast. 
And I still remember him popping open the medicine cabinet and saying, uppers, 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 uppers. There's somebody fat that lives here. And he started stealing every painkiller he could find. And up to that point, I did not think very highly of Jeff. But I realized in that moment that he was really an evil, evil genius. And so I didn't really take the pills, but I was surrounded by that culture of people who took the pills. And in a way, I was kind of the inspiration of them was the drug that I was high on. You know, you, you ruined, though, that whole scam for everybody. I ruined what? Well, the realtors now know not to let, you know, to clear out the medicine cabinets before open houses. Sorry. <laughs> another question, another book. Todd, please. We can have somebody come up, too. The guy right there standing up, yeah. In your opinion. In Chuck's opinion. Yes. Who's the most despicable character you've ever written? Who's the most despicable character in Chuck's opinion he's ever written about? The, uh, the character in Pygmy. Yes. Not Pygmy, not Pygmy himself. But the character who drops the white rat down the garbage disposal. That is something my editor told me not to do for years. Because David Foster Wallace had written a short story called Girl with Curious Hair, where eventually a bunch of punks douse a little puppy with lighter fluid and set it on fire and watch it run around until it dies. I did not like that story. <laughs> and then Irving Welsh in Marabou Stork Nightmares beats a, a German shepherd dog, beats it to death on a beach, an elderly dog. And so my editor said, you must never kill an animal in a story. Never, ever, ever. And in Pygmy, I had to demonstrate this character's complete evil. So it's a character who takes a a white rat and drops it. And that is, that, you know, I think guts is nothing. Most of my stories are kind of a consensual horror where people kind of agree or they make a mistake. It's kind of their own fault. But that guy that dropped the rat down the garbage disposal, that is the most despicable thing that I've ever written. So that's it. If Chuck could be anyone for one day, whom would he be and why? Anyone else in one day? In the present tense or across time? At any time. How long does he have to answer the question? I would be Hitler. I would be Hitler on the day when he decided to experiment as a young man with autoerotic asphyxiation. Alone in my decrepit Vienna room. Maybe with some like some German porn there, <laughs> jerking off to my thoughts of Wittgenstein. <laughs> See, I have a brain. <laughs> Muttering to myself, "Fucking Simish, fucking Simish, fucking Simish." 
I feel like you've given this some thought. While I slip my head in a, a looped towel in the closet, like David Carradine. Not realizing that a greater destiny, and then it's too late. My feet kick vainly above the floor, and my brain dies to spasms of the word Wittgenstein. Next question. Is that it? We've, have, we, have we given away three? Yeah. You want to take one more? Yeah, Superman. Oh, wait a minute. So you're choosing Superman yeah. of all the people out there. Okay, Todd. Yeah, go ahead, Superman. Go ahead. Yeah, this is for Chuck. Uh, <laughs> the thing is, I bet he has an answer. Like, he's given that the same Hitler question. It's Mary Fuck Kill, but it's the three of us. <laughs> no, I want to know. Oh. Wait, did I just say the F word in the library? <laughs> you want to change it to like Indian wrestling and. You know, there's an old saying. <laughs> Politicians know this saying, writers know this saying. You never really answer the question they ask, you answer the question you wish they had asked. A couple years ago, I was able to spend a great deal of time with Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z. And I had noticed that World War Z was dedicated in the very back to his mother, Anne Bancroft, and that it was written about the time that she would have been in the last year of her life. And so I finally screwed up my courage, and I said, you know, is this really about your mom's cancer? And he said, yeah. He said, but nobody's going to buy a book about my mother dying of cancer in this horrible, year-long, painful way. Because for a year, we took my mother to specialist after specialist, and they all said, we can solve this, we can fix this, we have a strategy, we can start treatment right now, you just go home and relax, because... Anne Bancroft, your mother is not going to die. She's going to be okay. And every specialist fucked it up. And every specialist didn't do what they promised. And the cancer cells just kept on growing and growing and growing. And eventually, Anne Bancroft died. And Max Brooks knew that he did not want to write a sad book about the death of his beautiful movie star mother. So he turned the cancer into zombies, and he wrote World War Z, which is a, a memoir of the year of taking his mother to one oncologist after another, and having hope, and then having the hope destroyed, and then in the end, having the cancer win. And his second book, How to Survive uh, a Zombie Apocalypse, is everything that he could remember his mother teaching him about how to live if supply chain economics broke down. That uh, during the Rodney King riots, when uh, Los Angeles was just veiled in smoke, at one point, Anne Bancroft, classy Anne Bancroft, 
in front of the whole family turned and looked at their pit bull and said, you know, I bet if we butchered Lucy, we could live on her meat for at least six days. That she did all of her own canning and that if worse came to worse, they would eat the carp out of the reflecting pool in their yard and that she had these, all these skills for how to save seeds and how to be self-sustaining. And Max wanted to preserve that body of knowledge that she had passed on to him. He said, my mother was basically a Jewish-Italian peasant who just happened to be a movie star. And that is how to survive a zombie apocalypse. So the long and the short is that writers really never answer anything directly. (laughs) We turn it into a metaphor because a metaphor allows you access to it. Because there are 14-year-old boys out there who don't even know who Anne Bancroft is. And World War Z is their favorite book. And that means that Max Brook did his job. Two more questions. The hat in the way back. Yes. Answer the movie question. Would I ever allow any of my past books be made into a movie? Uh, Of course. Yeah, you know, and Children of the Corn 24 really sucked. (laughs) But still, you go in the video store and there's like six shelves of just shitty Stephen King movie adaptations. And each one functions as a little commercial to bring people to your work eventually. You know, let's read the source material. So, no, I think, you know, in a way it's kind of fun. it makes it a little less precious. And, and that's kind of why I do this. Because, you know, to try to take away some of the pretentiousness around literature and book events and make the author, you know, less of a kind of exalted, impossible figure. That Says it, the man in the ascot. Yeah. <laughs> Chelsea is wearing pasties. On. Is that how tonight's going to go? All right. I have got so many secrets on both of them. So, yeah, you know, the source material is always there, and there is always the chance that they are going to surprise you. Like, to tell the truth, Rosemary's Baby was probably a much better movie than it was a book. It was extraordinary. And I don't think the latest Gatsby movie was that bad. That I think that every once in a while it works so fantastically well that it's worth the chance. So, yes. 
All of everything he writes goes into development. Like it's always like there's always movie stuff going on. Last book. Let's do the guy in the white shirt. Guy in the white shirt. Right there. You, yeah. This question is for anybody on stage. Do we think that success hurts inspiration? I'm sorry, I was talking, what? My, my father used to have a saying um, about that, that uh, being comfortable makes you lazy and stupid, which I try to remember. Um, I read commercial thrillers, like, you know, they're bestsellers, and I, you know, was able to buy a house with columns. Um, and so, I, like, I, I, it looks, yeah, like a sorority house. That's what it's going as for Halloween. We're going to hang the Delta Delta banner, Delta 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 banner from the the orating balcony. Um, but I think, you know, what, what becomes the biggest challenge, frankly, is finding time to write, protecting time to write, because um, there's so much promotion to do. Like, I mean, this is a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, we, you know, we're out all, all week and chuck much longer than that. Um, and there's, not, there's no time to actually write the thing. And you could spend the whole year promoting and then end up with nothing to promote because you haven't written anything, which I think is just like life. If anybody out there, you know, is working on a book or wants to be a writer, life always gets in the way. And the people who make it are the people who um, learn to write when they don't want to and are willing to sacrifice lots of things, lots of parties, lots of, um, you know, personal time with people they love to sit alone in a room and write. And on that happy note, why don't you answer that question, Monica? It's easy, is the answer. Well, I, I agree with everything Chelsea said. And um, do you want more of an answer? I, you know, I, I think that, I, I, I don't, personally, from my level of success, which is not the same as theirs, um, I don't think it gets in the way at all. I think the thing that gets in the way is, uh, struggling to get that first book out. I think that's like the hardest part in some ways, to, to kind of assert yourself against the publishing industry and say that you have the degree of authority that it takes to be an author. And I think um, that's a massive wall. I worked on my first book a long time. Uh, the whole time it was sort of saying, no, it's really good, and, and, and finally got it out. And um, I, think, I think it becomes increasingly freeing, actually, to feel like you're getting work out there. Like you're saying the thing you meant to say a long time ago, and then you can move forward with more um, ease after that. So that's been my experience. Uh, on, uh, you know, on, at the same time, I, I'm actually a, a professor, too, and I just launched a writing program. And uh, it, was a big, it was a big coup to launch that writing program. Um, it's kind of a crazy program where people can study uh, visual arts alongside writing. So it's for people who want to learn to draw and, and paint and, and make videos and project individual words on the side of uh, the Capitol building. 
or whatever they want to do, but, um, but also write. And that kind of success does get in the way, because I've actually had some pretty cool success over there, but that's not really what I set out to do. It's just something I want to uh, open doors for other people to do. So, yeah, it's a little bit. Um, I'm going to ask you something from the heart related to that. Um, if you would all like to help Monica quit this job, <laughs> her two books, Clown Girl and The Stud Book, both of which are brilliant, are being sold over there. Thank you. you. Pick them up right there and help her quit her job. And if you are a writer, there is no more effective way to learn writing than to steal from the skills of another writer. Steal from Monica. And Monica Drake's work and Amy Hempel's work and Amy Moon's work should be on your bookshelf so that you can refer to it like a dictionary and steal when you need to steal. Thank you. You know, and in regard to the success question, you know, there's a bunch of different successes. There's a bunch of different kind of... Uh, stages of power in your life. And when you're a young person, my crackpot theory is that your only source of power is looking good. You have to look good. You, you have vitality, you have youth, you have health, you have physical attractiveness, and you've somehow got to leverage that into skill and connections in a career, and then you've got to leverage that into wealth, and you've got to le leverage that into social position, that you use whatever source of power you have at that stage of life to try to attain the next source of power. And now that I have enough money that I could write full-time, I have the luxury of addressing subjects that are absolutely humiliating and degrading. And when I read the gut story, when I wrote that story, I thought, you know, I can never read this story because people are going to picture me putting a cake up my butt. <laughs> people are, you know, I'm the face of that story. I am going to lose any kind of human dignity in reading that story. And the next thought is then I have to because if I can't kind of wager this kind of pretentious human dignity of the moment for something better, then, that, then that's where I would get stuck. So in a way, I pay it forward by trying to write more and more challenging or sentimental or upsetting things. And that's, that's what I think I'm, I'm using the income for at this point. There's this instinct. A friend of mine recently told me a joke. He said, what do nine out of 10 people enjoy? I said, what? What do nine out of ten people enjoy? And he said, a gangbang. <laughs> and see, you have a takeaway now. But the problem is, I know that tenth person who would really love a gangbang. I know a lot of those people. So, our, I'm looking at one right now. So our human instinct in conversation is to dominate. So automatically I have to say, no, you know what 
nine out of ten people enjoy? A gang rape. That's the Daniel Tosh moment. <laughs> When you take the, the true funny thing and you escalate it and you escalate it and you escalate it to the point where it breaks down and becomes tragedy. And people don't laugh. The laugh becomes really conflicted because it's a kind of a shock laugh that, oh my God, he said that horrible thing. He said butthole in a library. <laughs> So in a way, that is where my success is constantly reinvested, is in finding a topic, a story, something that somebody tells me, and trying to honor it and trying to document it, and then presenting it, regardless of how it makes me look, kind of discarding the instinct of looking good all the time for the sake of presenting a story that I think is extraordinary, even if it is somebody else's story. That was all the books we had for questions. Also, you took my mic. Just noticed. Do you want me to use this one? I think we should do a ball toss. Would you like to toss some balls? All right, let's do another ball toss. But we need Todd and his zippy music. We need the lights out, please. Lights out on stage, please. You guys can do it. Dave, Mike. <laughs> Remember the chemical off-gassing. Keep those balls moving. No one wants cancer here. All right, let's let's up. Disseminate the balls. Let's let's share the balls. Everybody share the balls. Clear the trough, please clear the trough in the middle of balls. Excellent. I think the back needs some balls. Thank you. This is, this is really challenging when we, when we do this gig with balconies. All right. And that's enough. If you've got a ball, hold it in your lap. Everybody hold on to your balls. Everybody hold on to your balls.
So we have one more story and one more game. This is a story that will be in the November Playboy. The only glossy magazine that will publish my work. <laughs> this story is called Zombies. It was Griffin Wilson. It was Griffin Wilson who proposed the theory of de-evolution. He sat two rows behind me in organic chemistry, the very definition of an evil genius. He was the first to take the great leap backward. Everybody knows because Trisha Getting was in the nurse's office with him when he took the leap. She was in the other cot behind a paper curtain faking her menstruation to get out of a pop quiz and perspectives on Eastern Civ. She said she heard the loud beep, but didn't think anything of it. When Trisha Getting and the school nurse found him on his own cot, they thought that Griffin Wilson was the resuscitation doll that everybody uses to practice CPR. He was barely breathing, hardly moving a muscle. They thought it was a joke because because his wallet was still clenched between his teeth and he still had the electrical wires pasted to either side of his forehead. His hands were still holding a dictionary-sized box, still paralyzed, pressing a big red button. Everyone's seen this box so often that they, they hardly recognized it. But it had been hanging on the office wall. The defibrillator that emergency heart shocker. He must have taken it down and read the instructions. He simply took the waxed paper off the gluey parts and he pasted the electrodes on either side of his temporal lobes. It's basically a peel and stick lobotomy. It is so easy that a 16 year old can do it. In Miss Chen's English class we learned to be or not to be but there is a big gray area in between. Maybe in Shakespeare times, people only had two options. Griffin Wilson, he knew that the SATs were just just the gateway to a big lifetime of bullshit, to getting married and going to college, to paying taxes and trying to raise a kid who's not a school shooter. And Griffin Wilson, he knew that drugs are only a patch After drugs, you're always going to need more drugs. The problem with being talented and gifted is sometimes you get too smart. My Uncle Henry says the importance of eating a good breakfast is because your brain is still growing, but nobody talks about how sometimes your brain can just get too big. We're basically just big animals evolved to break open shells and eat raw oysters, but now we're expected to keep track of all 800 Kardashian sisters (laughs) and all 300 Baldwin brothers? Seriously. At the rate that those people reproduce, 
the Kardashians and the Baldwins, they're going to wipe out all other species of human beings. The rest of us, you and me, we are just evolutionary dead ends waiting to wink out. You could ask Griffin Wilson anything. Ask him who signed the Treaty of Ghent. He'd be like that cartoon magician on TV who says, watch me pull a rabbit out of my ass. Abracadabra, and he would know the answer. In organic chemistry, he could talk string theory until he was anoxic, but what he really wanted to be was happy, not just not sad. He wanted to be happy the way a dog is happy, not, not constantly jerked this way and that by flaming instant messages and changes in the federal tax code. He didn't want to die either. He wanted to be and not to be. But at the same time, that's what a pioneering genius he was. The principal of student affairs made Trisha Getting swear to never tell a living soul. But you know how that goes. The school district was afraid of copycats. Those defibrillators are everywhere these days. Since that day in the nurse's office, Griffin Wilson has never seemed happier. He is always giggling too loud and wiping spit off of his chin with his sleeve. The special ed teachers, they clap their hands and they heap him with praise just for using the toilet. Talk about a double standard. The rest of us are fighting tooth and nail for whatever garbage career we can get, while Griffin Wilson is going to be thrilled with penny candy and reruns of Fraggle Rock for the rest of his life. How he was before, he was miserable unless he won every chess tournament. The way he is now, just yesterday, he took out his dick and started to jerk off during morning roll call. Before Mrs. Ramirez could hurry us through the S's and the T's, People are answering here and they're answering present, but too slow, snickering and staring. Before Mrs. Ramirez can rush down the aisle and stop him, Griffin Wilson shouts, Watch me pull a rabbit out of my pants. And he sprayed hot baby gravy all over a whole bookcase full of nothing except for a hundred to kill a mockingbirds. He was laughing the whole time. (laughs) Lobotomized or not, he still knows the value of a signature catchphrase. (laughs) Instead of being just another grade grubber, now he is the life of the party. The voltage even cleared up his acne. It is hard to argue with results like that. It wasn't a week after he turned zombie that Trisha Getting went to the gym where she does Zumba and she got the defibrillator off the wall in the girls' locker room after her own self-administered peel-and-stick procedure in a bathroom stall. She doesn't care where she gets her period. Her best friend, Bree Phillips, got to the defibrillator they keep next to the bathrooms at the Home Depot and now she walks down the street, rain or shine, with no pants on. 
we're not talking about the scum of the school. We're talking about the class president and the head cheerleader, the best and the brightest. Everybody who played first string on all the sports teams, it took every defibrillator between here and Canada. But since then, when they play football, nobody plays by the rules. And even when they get skunked, they are always grinning and slapping high fives. They continue to be young and hot, but they no longer worry about the day when they won't be. It's suicide, but it's not. The newspaper won't report the actual numbers. Newspapers flatter themselves. Anymore, Trisha Getting's Facebook page has a larger readership than our daily paper. Mass media, my foot. They cover the front page with unemployment and war, and they don't think that that has a negative effect. My Uncle Henry reads me an article about a proposed change in state law. Officials want a 10-day waiting period on the sale of all heart defibrillators. They're talking about mandatory background checks and mental health screenings. It's not the law. Not yet. My Uncle Henry looks up from the newspaper article and he eyes me across breakfast. He levels me this stern look and he asks, if all your friends jumped off a cliff, would you? My uncle's what I have instead of a mom and a dad. He won't acknowledge it, but there is a good life over the edge of that cliff. There is a lifetime supply of handicapped parking permits. <laughs> Uncle Henry doesn't understand that all of my friends have already jumped. They may be differently abled, but my friends are still hooking up more than ever these days. They have smoking hot bodies and the brains of infants. <laughs> they have the best of both worlds. Lakeisha Jefferson, she stuck her tongue inside a Hannah Feinerman during beginning carpentry arts, made her squeal and squirm right there, leaned up against the drill press. And Laura Lynn Marshall, she sucked off Frank Randall in the back of International Cuisine Lab with everybody watching. All their falafels got scorched. <laughs> but nobody made a federal case out of it. After pressing the red defibrillator button, yeah, a person suffers some consequences, but he doesn't know he's suffering. Once he undergoes a push-button lobotomy, a kid can get away with murder. During study hall, during study hall, I asked Boris Declan if it hurt. He was sitting in the lunchroom with the red burn marks still fresh on either side of his forehead. He had his pants down around his knees. I asked if the shock was painful, and he didn't answer, not right away. He just took his fingers out of his ass and sniffed them <laughs> thoughtfully. <laughs> he was our last year's junior prom king. 
In a lot of ways, he's more chill now than he ever was. With his ass hanging out in the middle of the cafeteria, he offers me a finger to sniff, and I tell him, no, thank you. (laughs) He says he doesn't remember anything. Boris Declan grins this sloppy, dopey grin. He taps a dirty fingertip to the burn mark on one side of his face. He points the same butt-stained finger to make me look across the way. On the wall where he's pointing is this guidance counselor poster that shows white birds flapping their wings against a blue sky. Under that are the words, actual happiness only happens by accident, printed in dreamy writing. The school hung that poster to hide the shadow of where another defibrillator used to hang. It's clear that wherever Boris Declan ends up in life, it's going to be the right place. He's already living in brain trauma nirvana. The school district was right about copycats. No offense to Jesus. No offense to Jesus, but the meek will not inherit the earth. To judge from reality TV, the loudmouths will get their hands on everything. And I say, let them. The Kardashians and the Baldwins are like some invasive species like kudzu or zebra mussels. Let them battle over the control of the crappy real world. For a long time, I listened to my uncle and I didn't jump. Anymore, I don't know. The newspapers warn us about terrorist anthrax bombs and virulent new strains of meningitis. And the only comfort, the only comfort newspapers can offer is a coupon for 20 cents off on underarm deodorant. To have no worries, to have no regrets, it is pretty appealing. So many of the cool kids at my school have elected to self-fry that anymore only the losers are left, the losers and the naturally occurring pinheads. The situation is so dire that I am a shoe-in to be the valedictorian. That's how come my Uncle Henry is shipping me off. He thinks that by relocating me to Twin Falls, he can postpone the inevitable. So, so, so we're sitting at the airport, waiting by the gate for our flight to board, and I ask to go to the bathroom. In the men's room, I pretend to wash my hands so I can look in the mirror. My uncle asked me one time why I look in mirrors so much. And I told him it wasn't vanity so much as it was nostalgia. Every mirror shows me what little is left of my parents. I am practicing my mom's smile. People people don't practice their smiles nearly enough. So when they most need to look happy, they're not fooling anyone. I'm rehearsing my smile when there it is my ticket to a gloriously happy future working in fast food as opposed to a miserable life as a world-famous architect or heart surgeon. Hovering over my shoulder and a smidgen behind me, it's reflected in the mirror like, like a bubble containing my thoughts in a comic strip panel. There is a cardiac defibrillator. 
It is mounted on the wall in back of me, shut inside a metal case with a glass door you could open to set off alarm bells and a red strobe light. A sign above the box says A-E-D and shows a lightning bolt striking a Valentine's heart. The metal case is like the hands-off showcase holding some crown jewels in a Hollywood heist movie. Opening the case... Opening the case automatically, I set off the alarm and the flashing lights, and quick before any heroes come running, I dash into a handicapped stall with a defibrillator. Sitting on the toilet, I pry it open. The instructions are printed on the lid in English, Spanish, French, and comic book pictures, making it foolproof, more or less. If I wait too long, I will not have this option. Defibrillators will be under lock and key soon. And once defibrillators are illegal, only paramedics will have defibrillators. Here in my grasp, here is my permanent childhood, my very own bliss machine. My hands, my hands are smarter than the rest of me. My fingers know to just peel the electrodes and paste them to my temples. My ears know to listen for the loud beep that means the thing is fully charged. My thumbs know what's best. They hover over the big red button like this is a video game, like the button the president gets to press to trigger the launch of a nuclear war. One push, and the world as I know it comes to an end. A new reality begins. To be or not to be? God's biggest gift to animals is that they do not get a choice. Every time I open the newspaper... I want to throw up. In another 10 seconds, I won't know how to read. Better yet, I won't have to. I won't know about global climate change. I won't know about cancer or genocide or SARS or environmental degradation or, or religious conflict. The public address system is paging my name. I won't even know my name. Before I can blast off, I picture my Uncle Henry at the gate holding his boarding pass. He deserves better than this. He needs to know this is not his fault. With the electrodes stuck to my forehead, I carry the defibrillator out of the bathroom and walk down the concourse toward the gate. The coiling electric wires trail down the sides of my face like thin white pigtails. My hands carry the battery pack in front of me like a suicide bomber who's only going to blow up all his IQ points. When they catch sight of me, business people abandon the roller bags. People on family vacations, they flap their arms wide and they herd their little kids in the other direction. Some guy, some guy, he thinks he's a hero. He shouts, everything is going to be all right. He tells me, You have everything to live for. We both know he's a liar. My face is sweating so hard the electrodes might slip off. Here's my last chance to say everything that's on my mind. So with everybody watching, I confess. I don't know what's a happy ending. And I don't know how to fix anything. Doors open in the concourse and Homeland Security soldiers storm out and I feel like one of those Buddha monks in Tibet or wherever who splash on gasoline before they check to make sure their cigarette lighter actually works. 
how embarrassing that would be to be soaking in gasoline and and have to bum a match off some stranger, especially since so few people smoke anymore. Me in the middle of the airport concourse, I'm dripping sweat instead of gasoline, but this is how out of control my thoughts are spinning. From out of nowhere, my uncle grabs my arm and my uncle Henry, he says, if you hurt yourself, Trevor, you hurt me. He's gripping my arm and I'm gripping the red button and I tell him this isn't so tragic. I say, I'll keep loving you, Uncle Henry. I just won't know who you are. Inside my head, my last thoughts are prayers. I'm praying that this battery is fully charged. There's got to be enough voltage to erase the fact that I've just said the word love in front of several hundred strangers. Even worse, I've said it to my own uncle. I'll never be able to live this down. And people, instead of saving me, they pull out their telephones and start shooting video. Everybody's jockeying for the best full-on angle. It reminds me of something. It reminds me of birthday parties and Christmas. A thousand memories crash over me for the last time, and that's something else I hadn't anticipated. I don't mind losing my education. I don't mind forgetting my name. But I will miss the little bit that I can still remember about my parents, my mother's eyes, and my father's nose and forehead. They are dead, except for in my face. And the idea pains me to know that I won't recognize them anymore. Once I punch out, I will think that my reflection is nothing except for me. My Uncle Henry repeats, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. I say, I will still be your nephew. I just won't know it. And for no reason, some lady steps up and she grabs my Uncle Henry's other arm. This new person, she says, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me as well. Somebody else grabs that lady and somebody grabs the last somebody saying, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. Strangers reach out and grab hold of strangers in chains and branches until we're all connected together like we're all molecules crystallizing in solution or in organic chemistry. Everyone's holding on to someone and everyone's holding on to everyone and their voices repeat the same sentence, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. These words form a slow wave like a slow motion echo. They move up and, up and away from me, up and down the concourse in both directions. Each person steps up to grab a person who's grabbing a person who's grabbing a person, who's grabbing my uncle, who's grabbing me. This really happens. It sounds trite, but only because words make everything true sound trite. Because words, words always screw up whatever you're trying to say. Voices from other people in other places, total strangers, say by telephone, watching by video cams. Their long-distance voices say, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. And some kid steps out from behind the cash register at Der Wiener Schnitzel. All the way down at the food court, he grabs hold of somebody and shouts, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. 
and the kids making Taco Bell and the kids frothing milk at Starbucks, they stop and they all hold hands with somebody connected back to me across this vast crowd and they say it too. And just when I think that this has got to end and everyone's got to let go and fly away because everything's stopped and people are holding hands, even going through the metal detectors, people are holding hands. Even then, the talking news anchor on CNN, on the televisions mounted up high by the ceiling, the announcer puts a finger to his ear, like to hear better, and even he says, breaking news. He looks confused, obviously reading something off cue cards, and he says, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me. And overlapping his voice are the voices of political pundits on Fox News and color color commentators on ESPN, and they're all saying it. The television show people outside in the parking lots and in towaway zones all holding hands, bonds forming, everyone uploading video of everyone, people standing miles away, but still connected back to me. And crackling with static voices come over the walkie-talkies of the homeland security guards saying, if you hurt yourself, you hurt me, do you copy? By that point, by that point, there's not a big enough defibrillator in the universe to scramble all our brains. And yeah, eventually we'll all have to let go. But for another moment, everyone's holding tight, trying to make this connection last forever. And if this impossible thing can happen, then who knows what else is possible? And a girl at Burger King shouts, I am scared too. And a boy at Tofuti shouts, I am scared all the fucking time. And everyone else is nodding, me too. To top things off, a huge voice announces, attention. From overhead it says, may I have your attention please? It's the lady voice who pages people and tells them to pick up the white paging telephone. With everyone listening, the entire airport is reduced to silence. Whoever you are, she says, you need to know. The lady voice of the white paging telephone, with everyone listening, because everyone thinks that she's only talking to them. From a thousand speakers, she begins to sing. With that voice, she's singing the way a bird sings, not like a parrot or an Edgar Allan Poe bird that speaks English. The sound is trills and scales the way a canary sings, notes too impossible for a mouth to conjugate into nouns and verbs. We can enjoy it. We can enjoy it without understanding it. And we can love it without knowing what it means. Connected by telephone and television, it is synchronizing everyone worldwide. That voice so perfect, it is just singing down on us. Best of all, best of all, her voice fills everywhere, leaving no room for being scared. And her song, her song makes all of our ears into just one 
ear. This isn't, this isn't exactly the end. On every TV is me sweating so hard an electrode slowly slides down one side of my face. This certainly isn't the happy ending I had in mind. But compared to where this story began, with Griffin Wilson in the nurse's office, putting his wallet between his teeth like a gun, well, maybe this is not such a bad place to start. That's zombies. We're going to do one last little activity, and then we'll call it a night. Does that sound good? No. Oh, should we stay? All right, we'll do it. We'll stay all night. See you in us, Baltimore. Now it's your turn to write a story, okay? You've heard our stories. Now we're going to hear your story. Have you guys ever played Mad Libs? You've been playing it tonight on the balls. So this next part can be a little bit chaotic. So before we do this, you gonna get everything? Take this too. Um, I want to thank the library, especially because they stayed up, I think, later than they thought they would. And I want to thank the Ivy, selling books back there. They provided most of you with Doomed, and there's, uh, there's signed copies of Chuck's backlist of his previous books, as well as Monica's books and my last book. Um, now, this next part, uh, I want to bring the lights down, please. This is going to be one more ball toss, only here's the difference. We're going to need those balls up here. I'm going to need you to toss all the balls up. Wait. On my signal, I need you to toss all the balls up here, and then we're going to play a little Mad Libs. I have written a Mad Libs, and Monica and Chuck are going to draw the words from the pile of balls. Okay? Do you understand? On my signal. I'm not going to... I guess the podium is the safest place to be. Yeah, I would, I, if there are any other light people still here. No? Okay. Um, Whoever's near the lights, just hold on to them so they don't fall. Yeah. Okay. On my signal. One, two, three, go.
Get it out of your system. All right, let's play some Mad Libs. I need a number. I need two numbers. Need Find number. two numbers. Two numbers. Here's one if you want it. Oh. Eight yep. or one? Eight. Here's one number, which one is number. eight. <laughs> one number, which is eight. All right. I need a second number. Go, go, go. Second number. 23? 23 is the second number. I need three adjectives. Make it four. Obnoxious. Obnoxious. It shows up every time. Taint. It, every single one of our events. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we'll take that as a noun. Backstock it. Two more adjectives. Spooky. Spooky. One more. Yeah, you know, afterwards, you guys can come up and find your balls if you want. Like, if you're attached to your balls, you can... What? Is squid-like an adjective? Sure, squid-like adjective. I'll take it. Uh, okay, nouns. I need, like, 100 nouns. Um, Wang, I think Chuck already called. Baltimore. Oh, that's a place. Baltimore's a place, which is a different category. Fetus. Fetus, we'll take as a noun. Femur. Any other F-E words? Ninja. Ninja. You need more nouns? How about Nat is gay? That's a name. <laughs> and I need another... Uh, do another adjective, tubby, because I think that's cute. Uh, uvula. Uvula. Another uvula? Which is a body part. Yeah, you can't you as a body part. Miniature schnauzer. Awkward. Miniature schnauzer. Sure, we'll count that as a noun. Miniature schnauzer is a noun. A uh, couple more nouns and we'll move on. Like, just choose some of these, like these beautiful Nail balls filer. that are all. Oh, Nail look, filer. someone did a Homer Simpson. What's on that? Read me the words on that. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Earlobe. Right? Look at this. Hold it up. Look at this nice art. Show the people. Uh, eyelid and hell. Chelsea, I'm going to say earlobe. Earlobe is a body part. Oh, it's a body part. Yeah, that's fine. We need a body part. And a couple places and another body part, and I think we'll be good. Canada. Canada is a place. Canada is a place. A place or nouns. A place or nouns. Yeah. New York City City is a place. And now nouns. A couple more nouns. A bucket of Gatorade hot sauce and tequila. A bucket of Gatorade hot sauce and tequila (laughs) is a noun. And one more noun, and we'll, we'll call good. No, you can't just say that. Is it? What are we looking for? Okay. I thought you were just, you're just riffing. Platypus. Platypus. All right. Here is, you're aiming at me. This is a story that will appear in the newspaper tomorrow about this event that you're attending. Dateline, Baltimore. Best-selling author Chuck Palahniuk was in town last night on his doomed bedtime stories tour and eight people turned out to see him. (laughs) The spooky audience wore squid-like, oh no, that's sorry, wore wangs on their femurs and waved Ninjas. When Mr. Polinuk took the stage, writers Monica Drake and Chelsea Kane looking. It's up here. 
obnoxious, <laughs> also appeared. Name? It's got to go in order. You can't try to, don't try to corrupt the story. First name. Name. Oh, we didn't do names. Okay. Give me a name right now. Mamo. Mamo? Mamo. Marlo, is that yours? Ma- is that you? John Waters. Right there. Stand up. That's Marlo. He's right here and he's quoted in the paper tomorrow. Marlo, A, I need a noun. Wang major at the University of Canada said it was a squid-like evening, but it would have been better if there had been a miniature schnauzer. So true. Okay, number 23 audience members raved about the performances, citing a moment when Mr. Polinick cut off his own taint. and heaved it into the audience as a particular highlight. (laughs) Mr. Polinick was then taken by ambulance to an area hospital. I love him almost as much as the raven, said Iris. A bald, like, no laugh, I love that. That would never happen. Um, Iris, a Baltimore area platypus expert. (laughs) On a sour note, the Pratt Library reported some minor eyelid damage, and one person was arrested for, noun, a bucket of Gatorade, hot sauce, and tequila dealing. (laughs) Baltimore, I swear to God, you guys, you're crazy. Doomed centers around a, noun, uvula that died and went to New York City and now haunts the library as a ghost. It is available where all Earlobes are sold. Thank you very much. Baltimore has been doomed. (laughs) 